That's, that's good. Well, greetings. I'm so glad to see you. Uh, I know there's at least a, a couple people uh, that gave up the Westminster Dog Show to be here tonight. They told me so, so I feel honored that, uh, that y'all came. And I know some of y'all women gave up The Bachelor to be here, so uh, uh, I know that's probably what my wife's watching tonight. Uh, so anyway, thank you for coming out on a Monday night. I know it's, it's uh, not in your habit, and this is really an excellent crowd for a Monday night. So thank you for being here, and uh, uh, particularly y'all on the back row make me feel real at home because y'all are the Baptists here because we call in my denomination back row Baptists, all right? So uh, thank the back row Baptists for being here. Um, I hope you have the handout. Uh, we're going to start out with with a side that's got room for you to take a little bit of notes. And then towards the end of this time, I want to kind of look at a bit of an outline. You will see on the uh, opening uh, slide here, as well as in your notes, my email address. And that is because you might think of a question after tonight, and I would be more than glad to interact with you via email um, on, on the book of Revelation. Uh, so I, I look forward to that, it's, but it is in your notes, so do that. And also you'll see I've used these, this presentation before. I currently am a teacher at Union University, uh, which is a Baptist-related school in West Tennessee. And today, um, Dr. Dub Oliver, current president of East Texas Baptist University, was elected our next president. So starting, uh, starting June 1, uh, we get an East Texas fella from, uh, uh, for our new university president. So I'm very excited about getting to know Dr. Oliver, and I know y'all at least know of uh, uh, East Texas Baptist. Is it in Marshall, I think? So uh, I'm excited about that. Well, I call, this, I call this section appreciating the book of Revelation uh, because so many people are terrified by the book of Revelation. It's a scary book, and a lot of people have like, whoa, there's this dragon and this beast that comes out of the sea, and people with the mark of the beast get sent to the pit, and it's really, really scary. Uh, a number of years ago, in the mid-'90s, I had a phone call from a gentleman that I had never met before and still have never met face-to-face. He said, we are, uh, we are uh, designing a series of commentaries that will be called the Holman New Testament Commentary, and your name has been recommended to someone that could write for us, and we'd like for you to uh, write on the book of Revelation. And I'm like, whoa, why me? I'd never written too much on the book of Revelation, but, uh, and I asked my that time boss about it said should I accept this opportunity to write on Revelation and he said uh, um, I wouldn't because no matter what you say people will be mad at you <laughs> whatever you put down in print people will be mad at you so uh, I hope that you will take a look at my book uh, I've got some com- some of the commentaries are here the Sem- Mid-America Seminary graciously gave me a semester off for sabbatical to, to, to develop that and I, I had uh, I got stuck uh, toward the end of the book, and my wife would say, are you, are you done with that chapter yet? And I'd say, no, I'm still stuck. And she said, well, I'm, I'm tired of you spending time with that harlot chapter. So uh, <laughs> I got stuck on the harlot chapter in Revelation. And uh, uh, so she was very glad when I got over the hump for that. So uh, 
I've been very happy, uh, ultimately, with the results of, of the commentary in that I mean it to be an encouragement, something that people will get over with. Actually, I think the, the book of Revelation is given to us as believers for our encouragement more than for our fear. So one of the things I hope that we can talk about is that Revelation is a book that can encourage God's people. It's um, not given to us to make us afraid of the future. If there's any if there's any one message of Revelation, it's that Jesus is coming back and that whoever's on his side wins in the end. It may be tough until then, uh, but we win in the end if we're on Jesus' side. And so that's part of the, the message that I want to get through. One of the things that uh, we won't really have time to develop too much tonight is the book of Revelation is filled with lots of songs and hymns. There's singing all over the place. There's angels singing, and there's saints singing, and there's martyrs singing. And um, we, we sing some of the songs of the book of Revelation even today, but uh, the book of Revelation is a book about worship. We're, we're to sing and worship God, and we, we kind of overhear the angels singing in the book of Revelation. So there's a lot, a lot to, uh, to learn. There's a lot to take a look at. Yesterday morning, many of you were here, and you know, we kind of took a 30,000-foot view of the whole Bible. I think we kind of did the whole Bible in about 40 minutes. I was exhausted afterwards, and I'm sure some of you were too. And I promised that tonight we'd take a kind of a lower view look, maybe a 1,000-foot view of the book of Revelation. So I want us to kind of get an overview of Revelation. That's really my goal tonight, so that maybe you'll be encouraged to get over some of the strangeness. And so that you can see Revelation as a friend. Uh, and, and I know probably you look at me and say, why me? Uh, uh, many of you will know of the grand old uh, reformer, John Calvin. He wrote a commentary on every New Testament book except Revelation. And uh, the only New Testament commentary I have in print is on Revelation. So I guess I'm the exact opposite. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Uh, anyway, so... Um, I'm going to treat you guys like a class tonight. If, if there's something I say that you need me to back up and repeat, I'll be glad to do that. And then as Graham has indicated, I'll be more than happy to, uh, I'll be more than happy to take a Q&A uh, at the end of this segment. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the book of Revelation. I ask that you help us to understand it, to appreciate it, to see that this is a book that uh, relates to, to our lives as believers today, that we need not fear this book, that we need not, uh, we need, we need not be uh, fearful of the end times. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Some of you have been Sunday school teachers and pastors for a long time, and you may know some of these kind of basic things, but some of you may be new to the book of Revelation, so I want us to just kind of take a look at some of the background issues that we need to look at in order to really dig into the book. So I want to start out with some of the historical features. What do we know about the historical background of the book of Revelation? So first question that comes to mind is, well, who wrote Revelation? Who wrote Revelation? And Revelation uh, tells us that its author was John. So it's clear that John wrote Revelation. And then the question is, well, which John was it that wrote Revelation? And there are several that have been guessed, but almost from the very beginning of Christian knowledge, the belief has been that John, the apostle of Jesus, is the author of the book of Revelation. 
So it's my belief that, that that should be settled, that we can agree that John, the original follower of Jesus, was the author. John, you might, what do we know about him? Who was he originally? Remember, he was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, and he had a brother named James, and they were the sons of Zebedee, and John became a follower of Jesus in Jesus' physical lifetime, and uh, then later was an early Christian leader in Jerusalem, and then according to Christian tradition, was a leader in the uh, great city of Ephesus, where Paul had previously preached, and again, according to Christian tradition, was the last of the apostles of Jesus uh, to live, to die. And it's probable that, uh, that this is the, the last book written. So who wrote it? John, the son of Zebedee, the, the, the follower of Jesus. As I think about John, uh, when we look at the date in just a minute, John, John had become an old man. When John first started following Jesus, he was probably a teenager. He was probably 18, 19, probably the youngest of the followers of Jesus. And he probably originally thought of Jesus as kind of a hero. Uh, he, he, he had a, he had a uh, what do we call it today, guys, a man crush? Is that, is that fair? Well, and you know what? His hero turned out to be the Son of God, who was raised from the dead. And John had preached about Jesus for probably 60 years by the time that uh, uh, Revelation was written, and now he was an old man. He was, he was the last of the apostles left, left alive. So as you think about the author of Revelation, imagine a man in his, I don't know, 80s or, or maybe uh, 90s. He, he'd, he'd been following Jesus faithfully uh, for, for 60 plus years. Now, when then was Revelation written? Uh, we know it comes to us out of a time of persecution. John says that he was on the island of Patmos for the sake of the word of God. So it was a time where Christians were being persecuted, where he'd been sent to imprisonment or to a prison island for the word of God. And there, there are two periods when uh, this could have fit. Uh, there, was a, uh, there was the first a Roman emperor to really hate Christians was Nero. We've, we've heard about Nero, who was an emperor in the uh, AD 60s. Uh, but we really believe that John had reached an older stage in his life and that the persecutions described in Revelation fit better with the A.D. 90s, A.D. 90s. So probably around A.D. 90 to 95 when uh, there was an, an emperor uh, named Domitian uh, that was seriously, seriously uh, persecuting uh, believers. And so it's during Domitian's time that Christians are going uh, to, to the lions that, that we've heard about, and there's persecution happening. Uh, Domitian was an emperor who uh, wanted to be worshipped as Lord and God. And the Christians could not worship an emperor as Lord and God. So Christians refusing to worship the emperor uh, would be punished. And so Revelation is written out of, out of this context almost certainly in the 80s, and then probably, almost certainly, the last of our New Testament books to be written. Um, so uh, the, the, it, it kind of puts the exclamation point on our New Testament books. It would have been another 300 years or so before the New Testament was all collected in one place, uh, but still the last, the last book uh, to be written. 
The next question is, uh, what prompts Revelation to be written? Why, why is Revelation written? What, what's the prompt? Why did John do this? Well, uh, y'all, I'm simple enough that I'll take Revelation at face value in what it says in the first chapter. I just say, all right, does John tell us what prompted it to be written? And in chapter 1, he says that he had vision of the exalted Christ who told him to write it down. So I'm just simple enough to believe that that's the truth. That when John says, I, had, I saw a vision of, of the exalted Christ and he told me to write down these visions, that he did so. And so Revelation purports to be, and I take it at face value, to be information uh, given by Jesus Christ. So actually, if you look at the, the front, the, the, the title of uh, Revelation or the first words of Revelation, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, and we might also say the revelation from Jesus Christ. So he gives this information in, in the very best sense of the word, uh, the book of Revelation is inspired by Jesus given to John. And I take this to be as serious and as important a part of his word as any gospel or any epistle uh, from, the, from the Apostle Paul. Well, who's, who's Revelation written for? Who is it written for? It's written for persecuted believers. Pretty clear pretty clear, written for persecuted believers. When you read the book of Revelation, it's clear that persecution underlies almost every chapter. And there are various kinds of persecution that are, that are mentioned. There is suffering. There are martyrs that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. And if you can imagine this, and I know, I know it's hard in the times we live in, at the time Revelation was written, there was no known official anywhere in the Roman Empire that was a believer in Jesus. Now, I know sometimes we feel like we got it bad that those politicians don't understand us and that they're, they're prejudiced against believers. I, I know we feel that way. But at least there are some public officials today that believe in Jesus. And uh, there was no public official that believed in Jesus. An official government policy was persecute those who can't worship the emperor. So it wasn't just the Christians, but it was other groups too that were being persecuted. So Revelation written for persecuted believers. Some of them are feeling pretty clearly discouraged, depressed, you might say. Is there ever going to be an end to this? Uh, Is it worth it following Jesus? Or do all these powerful political forces win in the end? So there's, there's discouragement, there's, there's, there's a feeling of downtroddenness that they have. And so the risen Lord gives this letter, I, I believe, largely as encouragement to say, hey, hang in there, ultimately it's Jesus who's king of kings and lord of lords. It isn't the beast, it isn't, it isn't, it isn't Domitian, it isn't any of the other political factors that you see out there. So to the extent that any of us here tonight feel a little bit discouraged, a little bit misunderstood. I mean, where's the world heading these days in 2014? I don't know if you all feel that way, but I I sometimes wonder where society is heading and there's all sorts of question marks about the future. And uh, although in some ways we're far removed historically and culturally from those believers, nevertheless, here's how Revelation can speak to us. And one of the ways, by the way, that it speaks to us is it exalts looking at who Jesus is. It says, look at how great Jesus is. 
Look at this lamb upon the throne that's worshipped by thousands and thousands. The emperor, he's not so great after all. He's going to die. But Jesus is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. And if we're identified with him, what does it matter if we suffer? What does it matter if we're discouraged and downtrodden? There's hope in the coming of the Lord. So that's who Revelation is written for. Um, And then where was Revelation written from and to? And actually the first chapter tells us it's written from the island of Patmos and it's written to seven cities in the Roman province of Asia. Patmos was a little island out in the Mediterranean Sea that apparently was used as a Roman penal colony. It's been said that on the island of Patmos you couldn't get outside of the sound of the waves crashing on the shore. And uh, Revelation is filled with sounds that are described. John will say things like, I heard a voice like the sound of many waters. And I wonder if he's just remembering that, that he couldn't get out of the sound of the ocean waves crashing in on him. Uh, so apparently Patmos, a little island uh, used as a Roman penal colony, and then he writes to seven cities where there were little churches, where there were little churches. And uh, these seven cities are often referenced as the seven churches of Asia. And a reminder, Asia, for the people of the first century, was a Roman province. It was a Roman province that we would consider today about the western third of the modern-day country of Turkey. And it's hard for us to uh, think that the modern-day country of Turkey was a hugely important world center of civilization, but it, but it was. And so Turkey in those days had a long history of grand civilization and one of the administrative dis- districts for the, uh, for the Roman Empire was called Asia. And so Asia is where this is from. So we've got a little map. Some of you have a Bible map uh, uh, that you might want to take a look at, but we've got a little map. You may not be able to see the details, but let's take a look at the Roman province of Asia. Look at the geography. And uh, you'll see, um, can you see the little uh, arrow pointing to Patmos there? It's almost a speck there out in the middle of the Aegean Sea off the coast of the Roman province of Asia. The kind of tan color represents the Roman province of Asia. And there were other provinces around it. And so the, the first chapter of Revelation gives the order uh, in which... Uh, the churches are to be addressed. And what's interesting is they're the postal order that a letter carrier would have gone to uh, if he had landed at the port of Ephesus. So a letter carrier would have traveled, first of all, from Patmos on to the big city of Ephesus. So uh, maybe you can find the city of Ephesus. Go ahead and bring in the arrow to Ephesus. So the, the, uh, the, the letter would have first gone to the church of Ephesus. That would have also been the oldest and perhaps the largest of the congregations that John wrote to. You might remember that the apostle Paul established the church of Ephesus. He writes to Ephesus, and now the risen Lord sends a letter to Ephesus as well. So Ephesus is the first place. Then there was a, there was a Roman road system that went around and connected the major cities. So up the coast... The letter would have gone to Smyrna, 
and then to Pergamum. And so the, the letter would have gone up the coast, and it's very possible. We don't exactly know how it worked. It's possible when you read Revelation 2 and 3, each individual congregation gets its own little subletter. But it's very possible that uh, each congregation copied down the whole letter so it would have a copy of this book. Uh, you, remember that, uh, you remember that the only way books were written in that day were written by hand, right? So can you imagine what if the only books you had were handwritten books? And uh, so that's the way Revelation begins to be spread. So Revelation would have gone up the coast, uh, and then uh, next arrow, it would have gone around to Thyatira and Sardis, and then it would have gone around some more to Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then I don't have an arrow pointing back to the, uh, the, the city of Ephesus, but actually it's probably been identified that uh, these seven cities lay on what they call the Ring Road of Asia. It was sort of like an interstate system of the day that uh, connected all the cities. So that's at least the primary significance of the, uh, the order in which uh, the letters are addressed. They are in postal order, uh, more than anything, I, I know that there are different views about possible historical significance uh, to each of these churches. But what we really must keep in mind is that these were written to real churches in this real province for real need. And uh, we can see something of each of these churches at this time. So that's, that's a little bit of, of the ge- geography of the book of Revelation. Hopefully, if you have a study Bible, you can see these cities um, also, at the, at the back of your Bible, or perhaps an inset map, uh, an inset map uh, in, in your study Bible. But uh, that's something of, of the geography. And all, all of these, uh, you, you can see probably on the bottom left there of the slide, a hundred-mile sweep. So uh, it, it wasn't a huge, huge area. So that's something about the history and the geography. I know there's a history teacher here, so you've got to start with history somewhere. Let's move from history to something about literature. What kind of writing is Revelation? What kind of writing is Revelation? Well, um, first of all, Revelation is written in Greek. Revelation is written in Greek. And Greek was the language of the day. If you were here yesterday, you'll remember that Greek was the language spread by Alexander the Great. And the Greek had become the trade language of the day. Uh, The Greek style of revelation is not what we would call university Greek or Athenian Greek or Attic Greek. It was common Greek, Koine Greek, or we might even say today street Greek. Uh, It was street Greek in the sense that ordinary people were meant to understand it. The entire New Testament was written in the ordinary language of people, and they were meant to understand it. And uh, actually, the Greek style of Revelation is very similar to the Greek style of John's Gospel and the Epistles of John. There are shared features of authorship, uh, of writing style. Uh, There are... uh, it, the Gospel of John and Revelation overlap in some vocabulary. They're the only New Testament books that refer to Jesus as the Logos or the Word. And so uh, the Greek of Revelation is common Greek, and it's most similar to the Greek of John's Gospel and the Epistles of John, which kind of gives us further confirmation o- on the authorship. So uh, the, the, the vocabulary is very simple. Uh, Sometimes John gets in a haste and he writes things that, have, that are very peculiar grammatically. 
Um, for example, in chapter 1, it says, he, he turned to see a voice. But you don't see voices, do you? It's sort of an awkward expression. A lot of people have said, well, wonder why John wrote so strangely. And my theory is this. If I saw what John saw, and somebody said, write it down, I probably wouldn't worry about the grammar too much. I'd probably, I'd probably, I'd probably be in a hurry to get it written down. You know, my belief is that the Bible is fully God's word. It's, it's the word of God. It's God's word to us. It's all inspired. And I stand under that word. I'm not over that word. Um, but that doesn't mean that the individual peculiarities of each writer aren't preserved. So John has his own peculiarities, and he writes down this message, I think, probably in great haste. Uh, it's been fun for me uh, teaching New Testament Greek for a number of years to be able to get my students to read the book of Revelation. And it's fun. After two years, they can do it. I don't know if, I don't know if Pastor Graham ever read Revelation or not, but that's your challenge for this year is to do a little reading uh, in, the, in the book of Revelation. Um, so, the Greek style, common Greek. How does Revelation use the Old Testament? How does Revolution, Revelation use the Old Testament? The answer is not by quoting it, but by referring to it. There are very few, if any, direct quotations of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. But you sure know that John had known his Old Testament and that his readers knew something about the Old Testament as they read the book of Revelation. There's themes that are written. For example, one of the artifacts mentioned in the book of Revelation is, quote, the Ark of the Covenant. Is that an Old Testament idea? I think so. Don't you dare think of Indiana Jones. All right? All right? So, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, how about the idea of plagues on wicked people? The Exodus, right? And the book of Revelation has plagues falling on wicked people. Um, the book of Revelation mentions people singing the song of Moses. You're saying, what's the song of Moses? Hey, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you will see that after the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, they sang a song beside the sea, a song of victory. The horse and the chariot he's thrown into the sea. And so there's a song of victory in the book of Revelation. And there's just all sorts of thematic connections that, that when we read Revelation, you're like, oh, wow, where is that in the Old Testament? So I encourage you as you read Revelation that you, you keep your Bibles open and maybe use those cross-references. If you have a cross-reference Bible and say, oh, those cross-references are there because some scholar wants me to see the connection to the back, back of the story. So Revelation uses the Old Testament as a kind of thematic background, but not by, by direct quotation, okay? Uh, Next question, what kind of writing is a revelation? Should it be called an epistle? Should it be called an epistle? And the answer is, well, it, yeah, it is an epistle in that it was sent to churches, like Paul's epistles, but it calls itself a prophecy. It calls itself a prophecy. And uh, so uh, revelation is more a prophecy, I think, than it is an epistle, even though epistle is a letter that is sent. Now, having said that it's a prophecy, let me make a comment on what a prophecy is. When we hear prophecy, 
A lot of times we think of foretelling the future. Here's what's going to happen at some point in the future. And we think of a prophecy like, Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And we know that Isaiah is prophesying, predicting something to happen uh, in the birth of our Lord. But the Old Testament prophets not only were foretellers, they were forth-tellers. They were the thus saith the Lord people. You don't have your act together. You're worshiping idols. You need to repent and you need to return to the Lord. Uh, you You are treating widows poorly. You need to repent. And Revelation is both a predictive prophecy, a foretelling, but it's also a foretelling of God's will for his people. And, and here's how I want you to test that. There are seven little letters in chapters 2 and 3 written to the seven churches. And you can read them tonight. As a matter of fact, your homework is to read Revelation 2 and 3 tonight, all right? Five of the seven churches, the Lord Jesus says, you have something to repent of. You need to turn. Things are not right in your congregation. And just as the Old Testament prophets spoke to the people of Israel and said, you're not right with God, you need to turn. So in the book of Revelation, the risen Lord speaks to the churches and says, you need to repent. Now, y'all don't look at any other church than your own, but if five out of seven churches back then needed to repent, what do you think the chances are? All of us have some repenting that we need to do of. We, we need to be aware of, and actually I think that's one of the encouraging ways that we can read Revelation is to say, all right, where do we need to repent? Where, 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 do, where is God pointing out weaknesses in us? It's not just about pie in the sky by and by. It's about how we live now. So that's, that's how Revelation uh, uh, is used. It, it's, it's, it, it's, it's a prophecy, but it's a fourth telling as well as a foretelling. And I think you can look at those challenges. Look at the exhortations to God's people in the book of Revelation. Well, another, another question that I want us to look at as a piece of literature is, why is Revelation filled with colors, numbers, and sounds? It's filled with colors, numbers, and sounds almost more than any other book of the New Testament. Um, and Revelation uses numbers symbolically more than any other book of the New, Test- of, of the New Testament. It uses, it uses cover- colors very vividly, seemingly with symbolic meaning. Well, maybe the answer is because they didn't have iPad, all right, for us to uh, see the colors and the numbers. So John has to write it down. And so he writes down colors and numbers in order to create a sense of vividness. So I really think with the colors and the numbers and the smells uh, and the sounds of Revelation, we're supposed to engage all our senses. So I'd encourage you to read Revelation and say, what am I supposed to smell? What am I supposed to taste here? There's the smell of burning sulfur in one of the chapters. And, And there's all sorts of sounds and sights. And John turns up the volume. So let me give you a clue on some of the numbers. Let me give you some numbers clues. I think... Fractions pretty obviously represent incompleteness. Things aren't done yet. 
there's more to be done. In, in certain places, one-fourth of the earth or one-fourth of the people will be effect, affected by a plague. And that says, well, it's not complete yet. There's more coming. So whenever you read fractions, fourth, third, whatever, it stands for incompleteness. Number four represents the earth or the world. And we even do that today when we speak of north, south, east, and west, don't we? Four directions. And so there are angels mentioned at the four corners of the world there. Uh, the horsemen, the four horsemen are sent out over all the world. So the number four represents uh, the earth or the world. Number five seems to represent punishment. There is a horrible, horrible locust plague sent for five months to afflict uh, people that uh, are not sealed by God. Uh, the number six seems to represent evil in some way. And you'll remember that there is a trinity of evil at the end, the 666 mark. So kind of uh, six, three times, representing the kind of almost the completeness of evil. Uh, The number seven represents God or heaven in some way. It's clearly the most prominent number in Revelation. There are seven seals, there are seven trumpets, there are seven lampstands, there are seven horns in the lamb, seven eyes in the lamb. So seven is prominent throughout the book. Uh, The numbers 10 and 12 seem to represent completeness. And so the final holy New Jerusalem is seen as having 12 gates. It's as as complete a city as you can imagine. It has 12 foundation stones. So uh, as you read, there's some big numbers, uh, like 144,000. And if you want to know about that, you got to buy the book, all right? So, yeah, yeah. So those are the common numbers that tend to, re- tend to repeat. And actually, 144,000 is the biggest single number mentioned anywhere in the, Bible, in the New Testament. So there's no, there's no specific number uh, bigger than 144,000 uh, mentioned. Well, uh, another thing that happens in the book of Revelation is colors that are mentioned. And so there are, are colors in the book of Revelation. And again, they're described. So uh, the color white is representative, I think, of purity. There are saints that are given a white robe to wear after they die. Uh, the the uh, second coming, Jesus is described as w- being dressed in white. The bride is described as being uh, dressed in white linen. Uh, so there's uh, white seems to represent purity. Uh, there is an emerald green color. I don't know if that looks emerald green on the screen or not, but there is a green rainbow surrounding the throne of God that seems to represent life, life. And then there is a pale green color that is the color of death, the color of death. You might remember that one of the four horses that's sent out is a pale green, and that's the color of, uh, sorry, but a corpse. And, and uh, so it's, a, it's an awful color. Uh, that is described. Uh, gold is the color of value. Red is the color of sin. And black is the color of famine. And so famine is, uh, is mentioned in the book of Revelation. So uh, again, as you, as you read Revelation, pay attention. There's more colors in Revelation than in any other book of the New Testament. So just pay attention to the colors. Pay attention to the sounds. Uh, uh, when you read the book properly, you're getting a sound and light show. 
and pay attention. Let those sounds and sights overwhelm you. Uh, they're, there, they're there for a reason. Well, some theological features, some theological features. We've looked at some historical and geographical features. We've looked at uh, some literary features like numbers and colors. Uh, let, let me point out what I think uh, are some important theological aspects. And, and I hope I'll please all of us, whatever position we fall on, on millennial questions and tribulational questions, because we tend to get bogged down in those sometimes. So number one... What's the purpose of the book of Revelation? What's the purpose of Revelation? And I've tried really, really hard to write my book and to speak to you tonight with this kind of passion saying there are certain things that all of us who take the Bible seriously ought to be able to agree on about what the main purpose of this book is. Number one, Jesus will return to earth as conquering king and righteous judge. In John's day, it seemed like the return of Christ was delayed. And here we are, 1950 years later. And it seems like the return of Christ has been delayed. But I believe Jesus will come back. I believe Jesus will return to this earth just as surely as I believe Jesus bodily came out of the grave on Easter. And I'm absolutely confident of that. And I believe that Revelation portrays him as this king and judge. In our culture, we separated the ruling, feature, uh, ruling factor, kingship, from the judging factor. In ancient cultures, kings and judges were often the same one, and Jesus is both. So your, our relationship, personally, every one of us here, to Jesus determines how we're related to the final king and judge. Number two, the evils of the world and the devil cannot overcome true commitment to Jesus. Are there awful things that happen in Revelation? Oh, yeah, awful things. There's beasts and harlots and terrible things. And there's martyrdom. Is martyrdom the end? No. Martyrdom's not the, mar, martyrdom's not the worst thing that could happen to any of us, giving our life for Christ's sake. Uh, uh, you might remember that shortly before Christian, there was a young American that was killed in Libya. And uh, that young American, it was not in the news, but he was killed because of his faith in Christ. He was there not just as a U.S. citizen. He was there as a Christian missionary incognito. People are dying for Christ's sake now in our century. So evil, suffering, real. Christians must be faithful in the face of overwhelming evil. And Revelation does portray a lot of evil that can happen. But we're called to be faithful. Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. So there's that call to faithfulness. John's readers need that. I think we need that too, a call to faithfulness when, when times are not looking uh, really good. Uh, another question, a uh, theological question. What is Revelation's central theme? What is the central theme? If I, if I were going to ask you to come away with one sentence from our, our study tonight, it would be this. Jesus, the Lord of history, will return without fail to earth to bring history to its proper conclusion. Jesus will come back. He's the Lord of history. History has a plan. It's not random. Your life is not random. You're not an accident. There is a plan for the United States of America 
and China and the countries of Europe and the countries of South America and Asia. He is the Lord of history. He has a plan. If you were with me yesterday morning, you know the Bible tells an overall coherent story. And Revelation says that plan continues until the end. And there is a, hist- there is a conclusion. That's going- history is going somewhere. Lots of historians say, you know, does history have a purpose? Is history really going anywhere? What's the meaning of it all? Well, Revelation says it's going somewhere important. Y'all, we can figure it out if we read Revelation. Jesus is the Lord of history, and he's going to bring it to the right end. Now, mind you, you notice I'm being ambiguous on what that proper conclusion is, all right? So I'm, 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 not, I'm not exactly uh, tipping a hand on a particular, uh, a particular millennial kind of a deal here, but that's on purpose because what we need to see is Jesus will come back. He's the Lord of history, and he's going to bring the show to an end. Um, in my city of Memphis, one of the great preachers was Dr. Adrian Rogers for many years, pastor of Bellevue Baptist Church. He may still be on the media in this area. He might be. And, uh, and Dr. Rogers was famous for saying regarding the second coming, we Christians are supposed to be on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. Okay, we're on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. When we need to be sure we're ready for Jesus to come back, however happens, and not worry about the plans. It's his plan. All right. Well, uh, more theological features. What, what major doctrinal themes are developed in the book of Revelation? I've given you a little bit of a, a little, little bit of a clue. Some major doctrinal themes. I don't have these uh, on your handouts uh, on, on the, the slides, so just let me give you what I think are some of the important theological themes that you can look for. Number one, the second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ. Number two, the sovereignty of God in history. The sovereignty of God in history. God Almighty is the Lord of history, and he has a plan. He's not surprised by 2014. He's not surprised by anything going on in our lives. He has a plan. The sovereignty of God in history. Number three, the wrath of God against evil. We as Christians rightly emphasize the love of God. But Revelation shows us the wrath of God against evil. Not only does the book of Revelation show the wrath of the devil, but it shows us the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against evil. And then uh, finally, I would say doctrinally, the person of Christ is at the center. He is the slaughtered lamb and the conquering king. Very contrasting images He's on one hand in chapter 5, the slaughtered lamb on the throne. In chapter 19, he's the conquering king. So those images balance each other out. Slaughtered lamb, emphasis on the first coming of Christ, right? He came in order to die. Conquering king, emphasis on the second coming of Christ. He came once as the lamb, he comes again as the lion. So that... Look for those themes in Revelation. And then what about some practical themes? What good is Revelation in, in, in my life? Well, I would say, number one, the importance of worship for believers. Revelation is a book of worship. When you look at the book of Revelation carefully, you see angels worshiping and you see people falling down. 
And at the end of the vision of Revelation chapter 5, you see all the creatures in, in land and earth and sea falling down uh, to the Lamb uh, who is all-powerful. And uh, worship is a central theme. Did you know that when we as Christians gather for worship Sunday by Sunday, we're practicing up for eternity? We're going to be worshiping creatures for, for eternity. And we, do, we just get to practice now as we gather on Sunday. So our Sunday gatherings are kind of tuning up for what's going to happen forever. Uh, heaven is not going to be worshiping because, hey, there's a new song to be sung according to Revelation chapter 5. I'm grateful for the old hymns, but I like the new songs too. A revelation says, so maybe, Graham, you and I can write some new songs, maybe in eternity. I'm looking forward to that. So the importance of worship. A, a, a second practical theme, the reality of persecution. The reality of persecution for God's people. Persecution is real. And that reminds me that we have a duty today to pray for persecuted believers. There are believers in parts of the world, as you know, where radical Islam is on the rise, where communism is still an oppressive government. North Korea comes to mind. Where we have brothers and sisters that are already in some ways experiencing the terrors of Revelation. Now, maybe not in the full extent, but... It's, it's been fairly well documented that there are more martyrs for Christ's sake in the 20th century than any previous century. So we have brothers and sisters that are being persecuted, and it may come to some of us. We don't know. That's okay. Number three, God's protection of his people. God's protection of his people. God will protect those that are committed to the Lamb of God. And, and here's, here's my basis for thinking that. One of the r- real uh, hard numbers of Revelation to work with is the 144,000. They're sealed in chapter 7, and I believe it's in chapter 14 they're revealed. And the voice says, seal all 144,000. Do you know how many of the 144,000 make it through to the other side to glory? 144,000. There's not a one of the sealed saints that doesn't make it through to the other side. Y'all, that's exciting to know the Lamb of God is not going to lose any of his people. Now, again, never mind exactly what the meaning of that 144,000 is, but if you are bought by the Lamb, if you're his Lamb, then he'll get you through to the other side. There is that reality, and I take great courage by the fact that when you read the, that big number, the second time, it is not 143,999. It's 144,000. Every one of those that the Lamb counts as his own are protected. Um, and then finally, I would say um, the need for lukewarm Christians to repent. Let me, let me just end there on an oh me kind of a note. The need for lukewarm Christians to repent. You might remember that the seventh church is the church of Laodicea. And the Laodicean church is the lukewarm church. And Jesus says, I just wish you were hot or cold. Otherwise, because you're not hot or cold, I'm just going to spit you right out. And so you need to repent. So there's a challenge there for us. How is our spiritual temperature in the light of the book of, in light of, the book of uh, Revelation? Well, uh, I've gone, I've gone a, a, a good bit, so... Um, let me, let me very quickly, before we uh, run out of time entirely for this segment, uh, get you to turn over. So go ahead and turn off the slides for now. 
and turn over the page, and I want to just outline for you very quickly before we turn to questions the way I think you can look at the book of Revelation from an outline point of view. And this I developed in my commentary when I observed by study that four times in the book of Revelation, John says, I was in the spirit and something happened. And four times he uses this little formula, I was in the spirit and something happened. And I believe he is using that little formula, I was in the spirit, to say, I had a new vision caused by the spirit. That there is a new vision that happened to me. And so he outlines the book in four sections. So if you look at that more detailed outline, you'll see there's an introduction, a prologue, and an epilogue. But what I want you to see in bold print are four visions. And I'll encourage you to read Revelation and see four visions. Vision one, he's on Patmos. And the risen Lord appears to him in the spirit. And there is an opening scene of Jesus among his churches where the risen Lord is walking among the seven candlesticks. And then there are the messages to the seven churches. And there, I believe, is the vision of Jesus and his people between the two comings, between the first coming and the second coming. You want to know what Jesus is like? You want to know what churches are like between the first and the second coming? Read those chapters. And just like Philippians and Ephesians and Colossians and Romans were written for an original setting but apply to us today, so those letters to Ephesus and Pergamum and Laodicea and so on, written for historical congregations, have meaning for us today. Pastor, there's a seven-sermon series there. I'll give you my notes, all right? (laughs) Vision 2, John has a vision. He says, I'm in the Spirit, and all of a sudden he's in heaven. He's moved visionarily from earth, Patmos, to heaven. And there's the long vision from chapter 4 to chapter 16 in which we have Jesus and the events surrounding his return. And so there's, there's a lot of details. There's a lot of sevens. There's seven seals. There's seven trumpets. There's seven bowls. There's lots of sevens there. And there's great tribulation and so on. And I've given you a few clues on how that works out. But I really want to push on to vision number three just for a second. Vision three, he's in the desert. And we get a vision of two rival cities. And this, this is where you kind of, it kind of gets exciting to me about seeing the vision, the in-the-spirit structure, because we have two cities that are portrayed as two women. There's the city Babylon and the city Jerusalem. The city Babylon is portrayed as a harlot city. The city Jerusalem is portrayed as a bride city. Sad to say, but every human culture understands brides and harlots. Sorry, but it's a factor of human reality that we know brides and harlots. And we know that even though the cultural trappings of what a bride wears on her wedding day differ from culture to culture, brides are beautiful and thought of as pure and wonderful and lovely. And there's no more awful image to contrast with that than a gaudy harlot. And John, or the Lord Jesus through John, gives us two different pictures. There's this awful city Babylon, and there's the glorious city New Jerusalem. Uh, There's the harlot, there's the bride. And there's a challenge in this vision. Which, uh, which one do you want to belong to? 
Do you want to belong to the harlot city? Or do you want to belong to the bride city? And there is a challenge in the middle of this third vision to the people of, of John's day saying, come out of Babylon. Don't be hooked by Babylon. There is an enmeshing that Babylon, even in 2014, has. You know, there's a whole world system that wants to trap us up and get us hooked into it so that we forget about what's eternal. And it's my belief that, in at least some senses, Babylon and Jerusalem are with us today. Who are you going to side with? You, you can't be neutral. You've got to choose up sides. Um, I mean, you know, it was either uh, Seattle or Denver, right? You know? You had to choose up sides. Well, that's maybe a silly example, but you can't be neutral. And Revelation is about pick your side carefully, folks. Y'all, I'm on the lamb's side. It may not look like a good side right now, but in the end, that's the winning side. That's, that's the winning team. And so you get, uh, as you'll see in that vision three, the prostitute city Babylon, then their description of a wedding, and then you get the bride city, New Jerusalem. So you get harlot, Wedding, bride, sort of strange imagery there. And then finally, finally, the fourth vision, uh, John is taken to a mountain and he sees this lovely, lovely, lovely portrayal of the heavenly city, Jerusalem. And there is this outstanding portrayal. Now, again, symbolic elements. It's, it's, a, it's like a beautiful bride. It's, it's like a big city. There's symbolic elements there. But I think probably the point to get in all of that is ultimately heaven kisses earth. Ultimately, heaven comes down to earth. And just as God put our first parents in a temple called Eden, on which they soon managed to, uh, uh, to get exiled from, ultimately, our place as human beings is to be a part of God's heaven. But it's heaven brought down to earth. It's heaven brought down to earth. And the heavenly New Jerusalem comes down to earth and God is with his people forever. And when you get into the description of that wonderful New Jerusalem, the more you get into the city, the more it looks like a garden. It's got a river and it's got trees. And it's more and more like the Garden of Eden the more you get into the middle of the city. So I don't know if y'all are city folk or, or, or our country folk or small town folk, but our destination is a city that's a garden. It's a city that's a garden. And y'all, there's room for everybody. It's described as a giant cube. There was one shape in the Old Testament that was a cube. It was the inner sacred room of the temple, the Holy of Holies, they called it. It was a perfect cube as described both in Moses' tent and Solomon's temple. A perfect cube. In the final description of our permanent dwelling place, heaven, the New Jerusalem, is described as a perfect cube. It's described as 1,200 stadia, I think, on one side, and 1,200 stadia on one side, and 1,200 stadia high. Now, that distance is about, oh, from, uh, let's, let me think, it's a, it's a little bit farther than from Dallas to Atlanta on one side. All right, so imagine that dimension. So a city from Dallas to Atlanta on one side, Dallas to Atlanta on the other side, and Dallas to Atlanta up. Y'all, I'm going to have a lot of space. <laughs> There's going to be room, room for all of us. Do you remember what Jesus said? I go to prepare a place for you. 
And in some ways, that's described. And I hope what you, you see here is something we have to look forward to. There's junk. There's persecution. It may be tough. You may go, go through economic or health challenges or real persecution for Jesus' sake. But Revelation says, hang on. Jesus is the king. He will come back. There's a city waiting for us. And I want to be on his side. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Revelation as we've looked at it. Uh, Lord, I ask that this would be an encouragement and not a confusion and that uh, we might walk away from here with some equipment for uh, studying Revelation and seeing that this book can encourage us. It doesn't have to frighten us. And that uh, Jesus is at the center of this book. He longs for us to be with him as his children and that he's got a place for us to be with him forever and ever. Lord, I long for that time when the temple, the dwelling of God will be with mankind forever and the redeemed of the Lord will be with him. His servants will see his face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You want to stand up for one second and then we'll switch to a little Q&A. I know some of y'all probably need to go, and that's all right if you got to, but uh, we'll stick around for another 15 minutes or so, and I'll sell a book or two in the back, too. Yeah. If you have any questions, is this, am I on? Okay, yeah, you're yeah. on. Yeah, we want to we wanna be sure and get them recorded. We're, we're recording uh, tonight. And also, if you don't want to voice your question out in front of the audience, that's fine, too. Dr. Easley's going to be here for I'll be here. A, a little while after to, uh, to answer any questions you might have. So we'll, we'll JJ. Yeah, Doc, would you touch up on a little bit about that man, that number that John saw that no man can number in correspondence with the 144,000? Oh, all right. There are, you're in chapter 7, I believe it is. In Revelation uh, chapter 7, uh, John says that he hears about a number that is sealed, a specific number, uh, 144,000. And then later in the chapter, he says that uh, he actually sees a numberless multitude. So you're asking the question, uh, what's the exact relationship between those two? Um, I have some clues, but I'm not 100% sure. It's, it's my personal opinion. You can get out your tomatoes and rotten eggs, but uh, it's my personal opinion that this seal number, since they're listed 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, is meant as a symbolic number rather than a literal number because the 12 tribes listed do not correspond to the actual historical sons of Jacob. They are a listing of... Uh, the sons of Jacob that are not exactly his sons because his son Dan has completely uh, disappeared and uh, uh, his grandson Manasseh is mentioned, but Manasseh was the son of Joseph who is also mentioned. So you've got a very odd numbering of the, uh, or enumeration of the sons of Jacob and it's my opinion that this represents all of us who have the seal of the Holy Spirit. So that, that's my understanding, is that it is saying God has a very definite knowledge of those whom he has sealed with his spirit, 
And it is these people. So I take this, and again, it's just it's my interpretation here, this to be a representation of what the Apostle Paul will call the Israel of God, true, sealed people by the Spirit of God. Okay? And so from God's point of view, he knows exactly how many there are. They're, they're numbered there. But from a human point of view, it looks like a numberless multitude. And I don't know about y'all, but 144,000 would look pretty numberless to me if they were all gathered in one place. And one of the coolest things about chapter 7, I think, is that numberless multitude, they're praising God from every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And that is undoing the curse of Babel. Back in Genesis chapter 10, there was one language and God cursed humanity with multiple languages. And we've been struggling with multiple languages ever since then. Spanish and French and and, and, and all of the Asian and African dialects and so on. But you know what? One day, every human language will be used to praise the Lamb of God. And we can be a part of that number. I said to the folks that were here yesterday morning, I hope Southern English is part of that language that we speak in heaven. Uh, but I'm sure there's going to be other languages as well. So that's, that's, that's the way I would come across on that. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, when interpreting Revelation, yes. um, how do you know when to interpret it symbolically and literally? Oh, um, I think that's a great question. I think I would answer that the way I would for all, all of Scripture. I will take it as literally as I can, as long as I can. And if, I, if the literal sense doesn't seem to make sense, then I will look for a symbolic interpretation. Uh, so, um, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my imagination just isn't big enough to uh, figure out how a city could be 1,200 miles long and 1,200 miles up in the air. That just blows my mind to think, wouldn't that mess up the entire way we think about the way cities could be? So... I see that as saying, wow, it's going to be huge and ginormous. Uh, Is the final heavenly city going to be exactly those dimensions of heavenly cube? I don't know. If it's not that, it'll be something better. Yeah. So that's that's my best answer. I hope I'm consistent with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. In the back. This is more about a like historical construction of okay. the text. So you mentioned that when the letter left the island, it kind of traveled that. Uh, Apparently, yeah, that's what I take the construction to be. Yeah. So is it? Are there multiple, or were there multiple copies of Revelation? And if so, did they differ? And thirdly, how did the book, in the form that it exists now, come about Great. as a sort of a merger of the of the sure. the existing text. Sure. So the question has to do with the way books were copied back in that day. Presumably revelation like other documents that now make up our New Testament originated as a what we would call an autograph, an originally written by the human author. So I I presume that the apostle John wrote it down as he said he did and that eventually whether to the seven churches or not, there were multiple handwritten copies made. Just like for the Gospels and and the Epistles and so on, multiple copies. And those copies circulated uh, among the churches without the benefit of exact copies like we have through printing today, 
until the, as it were, there was a consensus among all churches as to which 27 books would make up the New Testament. So the canon of the New Testament. Now that did exist in various uh, forms, various copyists had various, uh, you might say, deviations. Some copies would leave out one word or add another word or or put words in a different order. But we have hundreds and hundreds of, of, of copies of Revelation and other books of the New Testament. And really the science that I'm not an expert in is called textual criticism, which is the science of comparing old manuscripts and trying to use our best knowledge of the way manuscripts were copied in order to reconstruct the wording of the original. So, for example, one of the guidelines usually is that copyists tended to expand a manuscript rather than to shorten it. So we generally think that the shorter manuscripts are, are more likely to be older than, than, than the longer manuscripts. And if you, if you will check the footnotes of a 20th century or 21st century translation, the New American Standard or the English Standard or the NIV or, or whatever contemporary translation, there will be references to manuscript variations. What's quite interesting is that all the variations in the original manuscript are in the old pre-printing press revelation. All, all of those variations can be accounted for. There's no doctrinal uh, matters involved in, in those manuscripts. In other words, it's a matter of word order or adding or subtracting a preposition or an article rather than any sub- substantial doctrine. So I'm confident that the English Bible translations that we have now are, are very fair representations of, uh, of the autographs. We don't, we don't have the autographs, but we do have uh, copies that go back fairly close to the time of the original manuscripts. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but is Revelation one of the one of the books that is present not only in American Bibles, but in like Ethiopian Bibles and like universally distributed across the what is now the New Testament canon? Or is it another book that I'm thinking of that's missing in some of the other? Oh, other all right. Yeah, he's asking a question as to what books make up the canon of Scripture. I think you may be thinking of the books of the Apocrypha, it's, it's often called. Uh, and the, the books of the Apocrypha are books that were actually composed in Greek in the period between Malachi and Matthew, you might say, composed in Greek and were added to the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. But um, to the best of my understanding, and I, I've worked in this for a while when I, when I taught Greek regularly, uh, all branches of Christianity everywhere have accepted the 27 books of the canonical New Testament as being the canonical New Testament. There, there are some questions about certain Old Testament books. For example, the Roman Catholic uh, denomination has accepted certain apocryphal books, but in the New Testament, uh, the, the, the Graham, the critical New Testament that we used uh, at Mid-America, the editors were an American Presbyterian, a German Lutheran, a Roman Catholic scholar from Rome and a Greek Orthodox scholar. And those represent the major branches of Christianity and the, the, uh, the United Bible Societies have come together. All Christians have a vested interest in the New Testament as nearly like the original as we can get it.
And that's, that's why seminary students sweat over Greek, so they can get there. Yeah. Good question. Great questions. Yeah. My question is uh, regarding the uh, last letter to the Church of Laodicea. Sure. And um, most commonly, uh, and growing up, I heard it interpreted as uh, when you know he wishes that we were uh, um, either hot or cold, mm-hmm. and not lukewarm. And I've heard that interpreted that uh, we should either be for God or against Him. So, what would you say to that? Um. Well. Uh, my understanding is uh, that uh, the town of Laodicea had a poor water supply. And so there was a nearby town that had hot springs and there was a nearby town that had cold springs that were piped into Laodicea. And when it got to Laodicea, both sources of water were pretty abominable. Uh, so, I mean, it's sort of like your coffee or maybe your tea. Y'all want hot tea or cold tea, but not room temperature tea, Right. Uh, now, I really don't, I really think it might be pushing it to say God would rather us be cold against Him than lukewarm. But I do think the major point is He wants us to be zealous for Him. He wants us, us to be stirred in our spirit. And that layout of sea in church, I think just by virtue of its water supply, the people there knew about hot springs, cold springs, crummy water in town. That, that's what I think. Yeah. Great question. When you, you talked about modern, present-day martyrs mm-hmm. and, and compared them to the martyrs at the time, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you want to get into what your position is on the premillennial, amillennial, or, or anything like that, mm-hmm. but do you think that we are in the end times and that they're going to last for more than the seven <laughs> years? You're trying to get an answer out of me, aren't you? <laughs> I, um, number one, do I think we are in the end times? Absolutely. According to Paul and Peter, we've been in the end times since Jesus went back to heaven. Okay, so we're, we're end times people. So, uh, you know, that, that's an easy answer. I got the Bible on my side on that one. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, and I, I think there's a way to think about the end times. Um, most all of us have been around, um, know about women that have been oh, eight, expectant by about eight and a half months. Um, and I think our world is about at a state of eight and a half months of pregnancy, which means there's nothing to hinder the end time scenario from happening. I think the Lord could come back. Now, again, I ain't telling you what I believe about the seven years and the pre-trib and the post-trib, all right? Ultimately, I'm a pan-trib. It's going to pan out the way God wants it to, all right? Okay, ultimately, and I don't mean that real, I don't really mean that cheesy, okay? I do think there is a teaching about a great tribulation. On the other hand, I'm very sure that our friends in China have been through tribulation. I'm very sure that Christians in radical Islamic parts of the world would think they're going through horrible tribulation. Now, there's an American... Korean that's been in prison in North Korea now for a couple of years, right? And we need to not forget those that are in prison for Christ's sake. So I, I really, I mean, I've thought about, I, I think it's very likely there's going to be sort of an end time intensification. 
But, but here's a little bit of a, a, a kind of pullback that I have on that. It's my understanding that the rabbis, the scholars that were alive when our Lord was born, many of them had the whole Old Testament memorized. They knew the prophecies on the coming of the Messiah. Some of them even knew to point the Magi to Bethlehem. They knew that prophecy. And yet when he came, they missed the Messiah. They missed him. They knew all the prophecies, but they missed him. And I hope that we as believers are better off than the Pharisees and the scribes of the first century, but it very well may be that uh, when the Lord comes back, we'll be able to look back and say, oh, yeah, how could I have missed that thing that happened in 2014? Yeah, that was it. That was the sign that, that, we, that we missed. So I, 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 I'm trying to fudge just a little bit in terms of saying, yes, Jesus will come back. Yes, the, the world is getting closer. Could it be now? Yes. Uh, when I moved to Memphis to teach at Mid-America Seminary in 1988, there was a book the seminary students were going crazy about. It was called 88 Reasons Jesus Must Come in 88. And the prophecy nuts had it all figured out. A Bible generation is 40 years. Check. Israel was founded in 1948. Check. Do the math. Jesus is coming back in 1988. You remember that. I see a nod there, and I'm like, didn't happen that way. And then some of y'all remember the Y2K craziness? It's like, okay. So I've lived through two periods of, I call it second coming fever. Okay? And there's probably coming another one. What I don't want to do is get cynical about the second coming. I want to live in light of the blessed hope. I want to live my life so that the Lord might come back before I make it back to Memphis tomorrow night. And so we need to live in the light of a belief in the return of Christ and say, well, you know, there could be this tribulation period, but I'm not planning on my life to escape the tribulation. I'm planning on my life to meet the Lord, whether he meets me at death or whether I live to see his return. Yeah. Okay, good. One more? Yeah. All right, there's two more. All right. Christ is coming first. Yes. And because he's coming first, and we don't hear a lot about him coming first, we hear that Jesus is coming. Right. I worry that a lot of the people will turn to the Antichrist mm-hmm. thinking he's Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all right. So her question is, what about people that might turn to Antichrist thinking that he's Christ? Uh, and I, I think that's genuine. Satan is an angel of light. He deceives people. He pretends to come across as good when he's really evil. Um, I guess my, my uh, answer to that is that, to my knowledge, the only books that actually use the term Antichrist are 1 John and maybe 2 John. And in 1 John, he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, but I say to you, that there's antichrists already here. And John says it's more important for you to be aware of the antichrists that are in your own times, I think, than worrying about who that future bad boy is. And so I'm more concerned to realize that uh, there are cultural forces of wickedness in our society today uh, that, that I think push back 
against Christ. I, th- I think about some of the cultural changes that are radically redefining marriage as an example. I'm like, it seems to me that's anti-Bible, anti-Christ that we need to be aware of. And so uh, uh, another part of my answer is uh, the best way, I think, to be aware of a fake Christ is to know the real Christ. Have any of you ever been to the Bureau of Engraving and Printing in Washington, D.C., where they print money? That's a fun visit. I was across a plate glass from like millions and millions of dollars, and some idiot had put up a sign saying, so close and yet so far. (laughs) And the agents there uh, at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing said, you know, we train our agents not so much what to look for in fake bills, but to know what genuine bills look like. And if you know what real money looks like, you won't have any trouble spotting fake money. So part of my answer is, if we can emphasize what the real Jesus looks like and know him, then, hey, we won't have any trouble recognizing fake Jesuses. Yeah, so that's part of my answer. So another part of the answer, I think, is that when that final bad boy comes, and Paul seems to allude to him also in Second Thessalonians and so on, um, uh, you know, um, he, he will be, it, it will be clear, but there may, there are some precursors. I know my nanny who was born in the 1890s, now with the Lord for many years, she had told me the story that they were pretty sure in the 1930s that Mussolini was the Antichrist. He just fit all the criteria that a lot of prophecy people came up with. Mussolini was the Antichrist. And then there was a 666 in the 1980s, Ronald Wilson Reagan, 666. And I'm like, okay, where did that? And then it was the barcode, you know, the barcode on our groceries. And and so it's like, we keep coming up with this stuff. And I'm like, let's just stick to Jesus and we'll be okay on the Antichrist stuff. That's, That's my... Take it. One, one more. more. Yeah, yes, sir. Two more. Can we do two? It's your call, man. Glad to have Dr. Parsons with us from the seminary. Uh, I'm just curious how your view is similar or contrast with George Eldon Ladd's book, Blessed Hope. Oh, reminds me a whole lot what you tell uh, Yes, I've read Ladd, his view on, uh, I guess you might call it a historic premillennialism, uh, would be very similar. I mean, I was well informed by him in my both in my seminary studies as well as in my preparation for the Revelation commentary. Yes, sir. Okay, that gives us a clue then. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Thanks, uh, one scholar to another here. Thank you very much. Grace back here. Yeah. By the way, part of my answer to that is that sometimes it depends on which side of the bed I get out of on the morning, which, which view I hold to. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Mine's kind of simple. Uh, I know reading... Revelation, you get the blessings. And yep. you said it's a word of encouragement. Yep. But how would you sell it to people that just say, no, no, I'm not going to read that. It's just too complicated for me and not, you know, it's just doom and gloom. Uh, wow. So the, how do you practically encourage people uh, reading the book of Revelation? Well, I would say if you'll, a uh, uh, couple of ways, if you'll focus on the first three chapters, they're not so scary. And chapter 1 particularly gives us a wonderful portrait of Jesus as this shining figure walking among the churches. Uh, So uh, uh, I would say concentrate more on what we can see of the Lord Jesus rather than the doom and gloom. Uh, Chapter 1 has the portrait of Jesus, chapter 5 does, and chapter 19. And all of those wonderful portraits of Jesus. And I would say 
uh, concentrate on the parts that we can understand to give us encouragement and let, let the junk go. Yeah, not that, it, not that it's junk, you understand that, but let, let the hard parts go. I mean, again, Dr. Rogers used to say it's more important for us to follow and obey the parts of the word that we do understand than to worry about trying to figure out the parts of the word that we don't understand. And, and that's, that's a good word. Revelation, by the way, in its very opening verses, promises a blessing to those who read it and hear it. So it's the only specific Bible book that promises a blessing from, from reading it. And I'm like, okay, I want to be blessed, so let's read some Revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah.